Today's episode is brought to you by Eat Your Coffee. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, me, Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hello again and welcome to the Thanksgiving edition of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And as always, with the Thanksgiving episode, we like to bring you something special. We like to do something nice. And as always, to give back to the listeners of the two-man power trip of wrestling. And before we get into today's episode, I'd like to take a walk down memory lane and relive some classic moments from the Thanksgiving night tradition, the WWF Survivor Series, with a few classic moments as told to us by both Mo from Men on a Mission and the God. Bobby Gooker himself, Hector Guerrero. So before we get into today's episode, please strap in for a few minutes here and listen to some classic stories from two classic episodes of the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, 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 I've got a partner for Survivor Series 2. I would like to take this time to introduce him to you. So here's Doink. Hey, Doink. We're not advertised to be on the pay-per-view, that we were just there. And then we're just sitting there in the locker room, and somebody says, come to us and say, hey guys, y'all need to go to makeup. And we're like, go to makeup? What the hell are you talking about? It was like, they was like, go to makeup. So we go to makeup, and the first thing that we do, they say, sit down in the chair, and they start packing us up. And we're like, what is this about? And they're like, well, uh, you two guys with Oscar, 
and the bushwhackers are going to be the four dogs tonight. And <laughs> it, 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 was just, it was so stupid, man. We were like, are you kidding me? Really? I mean, I mean so we thought like, man, this has got to be a rib, right? Really? You, you all, we just got here, you clowning us already? You know, <laughs> literally clowning us, right? Vince is like, guys, you could do it. Just, we just want you to have fun. We don't, it's not, it's not supposed to be a, uh, 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 a serious thing, you know. Find the funniest ways to beat each other. You know, sniff on a banana peel, throw the, the pail of confetti, use a scooter. I mean, they pretty much said, Mo, we want you somewhere during the match to circle the ring with the scooter. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? And I'm, here I am in the ring, circling the ring with a scooter, and the scooter's broke. The wheel's going one way. I'm trying to go the other way. It was it was so stupid, man. But yet it was so entertaining. When you look back at it afterwards, it's like, that is the funniest, dumbest shit you ever seen in your life. But, but it worked, you know. It worked. Things are really heating up here at the Survivor Series. And I got to tell you, these great fans here in Hartford, Connecticut are red hot, too. But this egg is gonna hatch here tonight. As a matter of fact, hold on. I, I can hear it starting to creak and crack right now. Oh, oh there it is! What is it? What, what in a world? Oh my god! What? What in the world is this? I don't know. You got a pair of legs like my mother-in-law, pal. Look at the feet on this thing. I can't believe what in God's name is this. Holy God. What, what is with the gobbledy? The gobbledygook. Ha! Don't tell me you're the gobbledygooker. You've got to be kidding me. And, uh, and, then, and then they said, Hector Guerrero? I go, yes. He says, don't hang up. This is uh, Vince would like to talk to you. <laughs> so I go, who? <laughs> Vince McMahon would like to talk to you. So I talked to Vince. We, he gave me the whole idea that you want to do uh, something like the San Diego chicken and crack it out of an egg at Survivor Series and call it egg-siding, you know, like E-G-G, egg-siding. Interesting because my brother, Eddie, used to, used to call him egg because he was Eddie Gory Guerrero, so egg, so interesting. But going back to the gobbledygooker, but I remember that the town was very unforgiving, too. As soon as I cracked out of that egg, they were booing, man. I mean, booing. Now, the kids were yelling. I could hear some of the kids yelling, but the boos were more than the kids. So it was uh, it was it's immediately, you know, and then Gene was trying to, you know, work it up. As a matter of fact, when I got down and he put down the mic, after we had a little lingo we did, I said to him, Gene, is he taking it? He says, well, we said, Hector, we got to get it over. Let's get it over. He just, we well, made our way to the ring, and he, you know, he tried to follow me up, and he, he, he fell in the ropes, and he to do the things that I was trying to do and he couldn't do them you know and this and that and he did that you know to try to get it over well the next day he was black and blue I heard yeah <laughs> that's that's how good Gene Gene you know mean Gene was he's he's a he's a he's a player man a great guy anyway but uh, they looked at it in a, as a frown this is probably you know what if I would have known that that's the type of crowd that was in Hartford Connecticut I would have, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have done it. I didn't know his, I didn't know his territory. Boy, I walked into the dressing room and I'm looking, he's looking at me. He's not looking, 
not happy to look at me. <laughs> he, was, he was not happy. And he's looking at me, he's giving me very dirty looks, and I'm going, oh my God, I wonder if he knows. And uh, I was going to say something about it, but then he walked away. Here comes Gorilla Monsoon, walks into the door and he looks at me. You couldn't see, right? And I go, you think? He says, well, we figured it out. <laughs> This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to the Thanksgiving episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling, powered today by our partner, Eat Your Coffee. Once again, coming back for another fantastic episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast, and on this Thanksgiving episode, we'd like to dig deep into the vault of an unpublished interview from John and myself that we took part in last January in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as part of the Icons of Wrestling Convention reunion of the Four Horsemen, and we sat down for a couple of minutes with the great Barry Windham. That's right, Barry Windham joining the two-man power trip of wrestling in a quite uh, odd effort on our parts as we had to do this while he was signing autographs and kind of in between some of the patrons that were coming up. But hey, this was the only way we were able to get it done with Barry, who committed to come on the show many, many times but just the uh, the reception and the signal that he gets wouldn't be beneficial for a podcast interview. So with that, he accommodated us for a couple of minutes while we were all hanging out in Philly with Arn Anderson, with Tully Blanchard, with Barry Windham, and of course, woo, the nature boy, Ric Flair, was an absolutely memorable day for John and myself and the whole crew that we had working with us that afternoon in Philadelphia. But uh, kind of funny to see that Barry Windham sits on the shelf for the two-man power trip for 11 months. But hey, we knew that it would be fantastic to throw out here on a special occasion. And whereas it's only about 10 to 12 minutes in length, we're going to absolutely dedicate this full episode to the Four Horsemen. So after this interview with Barry Windham is over, you are going to sit back and listen to a couple of his Four Horsemen partners as we are going to hear from Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard on today's episode talking about some of those Four Horsemen glory days and uh, absolutely helping you relive some of the greatest moments in the history of the wrestling business. So it's not too shabby when you can throw an interview like Barry Windham out there. And of course, we thought we'd give back to you, the listener of the two-man power trip, as we are very thankful for every single download that we get on this show, as well as over on the Triple Threat Podcast, where if you haven't had a chance to listen to this week's episode, we were joined by Shane's former manager, Francine, and the hardcore icon himself, Mick Foley to wish Shane a supposed happy birthday, but uh, listen to that episode and find out the rest of the story if you haven't heard it already. So everyone, thank you so much for tuning in, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode. It's a nice little interview here with Barry Windham talking about the Four Horsemen, talking about Blackjack Mulligan, and uh, just being able to sit down with an absolute legend and a behemoth. He's still a giant man. And his hands are like catcher's mitts, I can tell you that much. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Let's strap in right now for a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business. And let's get this Thanksgiving episode on its way. And we are joined today by the one and only Barry Window. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer, Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., 
Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a former NWA United States Heavyweight Champion, a former NWA United States Tag Team Champion, of course, a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, a WWF Tag Team Champion, as well as a WWE Hall of Famer, he is the one and only Barry Windham. Please enjoy. back here on the two-man power trip of wrestling and this is an interview we've been trying to get set down for a long time and i can't believe i'm still talking to him uh, even after seeing you in north carolina in uh, november but i got to welcome in the one and only barry windham barry thanks for coming on well it's good to be here thank you oh absolutely barry you know we've been we've been seeing the love for the horsemen lately there seems like there's this renaissance of horseman nostalgia as of late and i gotta say we're in philadelphia as we speak was philadelphia a horseman town yeah, it absolutely was. It was one of our favorite towns. It was a real heel town, and uh, we all enjoyed working in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia fans are obviously some of the most passionate, most knowledgeable, and some of the uh, maybe the most critical fans you could possibly find, maybe even the smartest, too. Was Philly a tough city to work in? Well, it wasn't for me, you know, because of the style that I worked, but I've seen guys have problems working for the Philly crowds you know you just have to work snug and make everything believable and of course I mean Philadelphia for the WWF was a huge stop for you guys you were here every month so obviously they already had a little bit of a knowledge for you when you started coming through with the horsemen but was the WWF fan different than the uh, NWA fan in Philly uh you know 
of course, you know, they, they were always different crowds, but, you know, there were some fans that were the same, but but uh, different audiences, a, a lot a lot younger crowd here with WWE. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the, the WWF obviously was appealing to a certain fan base, and the NWA was appealing to a different fan base, too. But whether it was uh, WWF or NWA, did, did you feel like when you stepped through the, ring, the ropes in Philly, that you had to perform a little bit different because the fans are a little more in tune as to what's going on? Well, I mean, whenever you knew you had to work, like I said, just the way that I worked, it was, just, it was never a problem. But some guys, it was. Is there any matches that stand out to you from Philadelphia that I know you guys believe you, you lose, you lost the tag team championship with uh, you and Rotunda here. But is there any matches that stand out in Philly? You know, I've been here so much that it's just, I've been coming to Philly. You know, wrestling since 19, uh, I guess, 83 or 84 was my first time up here. And, you know, when my dad was in the business, I traveled with him to Philadelphia. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a part of me and a part of my, my, my blood. And you talk about your dad, obviously, the great Blackjack Mulligan. Another guy who, no matter where he was, the big Blackjack was always a feared guy. And he always had something, uh, a little bit more to add to uh, to a card. What did you learn from your dad? We'll pick it up. Well, when I trained my dad, you know, we just we talked about psychology, uh, selling, you know, just how to work. Uh, he always wanted me to work a little snugger, a little, a little heavier than I did. Like, I guess I was kind of light. Um, you know, I learned a lot. He's a guy that, I mean, like, he, he's kind of morphed in one of those mythical figures that we always hear about. That they don't make anymore. They don't make anybody like your dad. Did you feel in the backstage area the respect from all the other guys for your dad? Oh, yeah, I always have. You know, that's just how the wrestling is. Now, you- Most guys, you know, respect their peers and their elders. There's been a few Absolutely. And you think your dad in his day, obviously, I know they had some wars, him and Andre, you think that your dad and Andre, if given the, the huge platform like a, like a WrestleMania, that two of them, could they tear the house out with a massive, massive brawl? You know, I never saw them work, but I know that uh, my old man worked with Andre a whole lot. And, uh, you know, he enjoyed working with Andre. I think Andre enjoyed working with him. As far as the dynamics of the match, it'll be really exciting to watch. Absolutely. Because somebody's going to slam Andre. Obviously, uh, the big blackjack's going to be right up there. And I believe he did. he's one of the few that could say he actually did slam Andre, right? Huh. I don't know that. We'll have to research that. I believe there is footage. I want to say there is. Well, hold me to this if, I, if I'm incorrect. But I believe he did slam Andre once or twice. Now, here's the question. Obviously, if you were to get in there with Andre, what would it take for Barry Windham to take out the big man and get him up and uh, drop him for a slam. I was always Andre's partner, so I never worked against him. We have seen the turns. We've seen the double cross. If you were going to work against Andre, how would you get him up? I would have to beat him with a two-by-four. <laughs> and from behind, of course. Yeah. Here with Barry Windham, one of the greatest workers of all time, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Obviously, the Four Horsemen is special. What do you think it is about the Four Horsemen so special? But it was your group specifically, because when you look at it, everyone always says the original is better, but 
except for the Four Horsemen. So you got Ole Arn, Tully and Flair in the original, and they don't say that's the best one. They say it's Barry, Arn, Tully and Flair. So what is it about your group before that the people say the original uh-uh isn't the best? Well, it was just our work rate and the way that we all uh, gelled and worked together. You know, Ole was, you know, he, he was always right there. You know, he was slow and, and methodical. Uh, the horsemen had just evolved, you know, over the few years since Ole had been there. And, and we were more, uh, you know, more quick and, uh, and just, uh, just a better study. I mean, it was, uh, to be a part of that team was, you know, it was the highlight of my career, but, uh, you have to you have to be at a certain point in your career where you can be a horseman and uh you know it's either body or talent and i guess i had enough talent to do it you were such a great worker not nothing against Ole saying that he's not or anything but it's just that you were such a great worker just unbelievable and then flair and then old and then uh, tully and then Arn, and it's almost like man these four guys are the best workers in the company together did you guys truly believe you were the best at that point as far as work grade wise and being able to basically tear down the house every night well i don't know if we labeled ourselves you know as the best workers but but that was always our goal to go out there and try to have the best match that we could you know the most believable and and the best and that's what we did usually now you obviously have have held many titles u.s title nba world title the titles mean a lot to you you know in the essence of thing like me as a fan titles always meant a lot but as you the wrestler did it mean a lot to be the nwa world champion u.s champion tag champ things like that well when i started i set out a goal to be the nwa heavyweight champion and uh you know a after i had attained that it would it had kind of lost its luster but you know, it's just uh, it's 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 like resting on your laurels. You know, if you if you uh, put too much weight on those belts, so you know you just have to you have to go out there and work your ass off every night, and that's what we did. Now, when you were going after Flair, and you guys were having in the, in the mid to late eighties having five star matches, whether it be in the NWA, whether it be in Florida, whether you know whether it be part of the Great American Bash Tour or wherever, and you guys are tearing it down. At that point, did you think like, okay, now I'm going to be the anointed one? I should probably be the next NWA World Champion. No, it, I mean it was uh, those decisions at that time. You know, were made out in. Uh, in uh, St. Louis and Kansas City by uh, Bob Geigel and, and the uh, NWA. And Jim Crockett was on the board too. And, you know, I was, I was in line to be the champion. It's just, uh, you know, with Flair leaving, uh, going to uh, WWE and, you know, it was just different things. And also there was a time when I didn't want the title. So, you know, when I finally did get it, then I had my knee blown out. So, you know, it was just... Uh, Anyway, it just lacked a little bit for me, but but it was still, you know, I guess, a, you know, a feather in my cap. Unbelievable. One of the great workers finally got to finally say, you know, end up be a world champion or world champion. You were so great. But going back to the 80s, you and Flair, I can't even believe, like, the, you know, they say five-star match or Dave Meltzer say five-star match, which is basically a perfect match. Can you even describe the chemistry that you and Flair were able to have then, whether it be Florida or whether it be in the NWA? Somehow, some you know, you guys were able to just literally gel to where somebody you know of high stature can say it's the most perfect match he's ever seen. 
Well, I mean, Rick and I just had the chemistry, and, and I've known Rick, you know, since I was a little kid, and I've always been around him, you know, so you just you just learn somebody, and, and you get to know who they are. Uh, you know, we never talked over our matches at all. We just went in there and went at it, and, uh, you know, that was, that was the end result. Such amazing matches. You know, they say, oh, you go back and you watch matches, it holds up. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's one of those great things. People say Flair Steamboat. I say Flair Wyndham. It's just as great. You guys had such great chemistry. Do you get a lot of fans, like when you're at conventions like this, and that a lot of people talk to you about the Flair matches or the Horsemen, or what are they talking to you most about? You know, usually they mention the Flair matches, you know, an hour on TV. But, you know, Rick and I went an hour through and an hour and a half through all over the country. So it was just, uh, you know, it was just a, a television event that, that people remember, but we did it all over the place. Now, obviously, you know, the four horsemen that, that I said is the best, you, Arn, Tully, Flair, you know, you get J.J. in the mix as well. Do you agree that that's the greatest horseman of all time? Yes, absolutely. Thinking of some other horsemen that you were in, some other incarnates, technically Kendall was a horseman at one point. You know, technically Sting a little bit at one point, Sid. Do you consider those guys, horsemen, consider the group, or do you almost consider it a little bit watered down at that point where they were trying to recreate what you guys had created originally? Uh, once you're a horseman, you're a horseman. So, I mean, whether Flair was in it or J.J. or Arnon Tully or, you know, or me, it was just, uh, you know, it, 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 the idea belonged to the promotion, and it, and it was theirs. So, yeah, there's other horsemen out there. <laughs> Very, very true. Now, you know, horsemen are unbelievable. They're awesome. But specifically with you and your career, this might be impossible to narrow it down. But when you, like, go back and let's say you want to watch tapes or show, you know, the kids and the grandkids and stuff like that, do you have favorite matches or, or even maybe a couple or a favorite match that you say, oh, this is the one, if you want to watch Barry Wyndham, this is the one you need to watch? You know, I haven't gotten there in my career yet, but I'm sure it'll, it'll come. I've already started saving some on YouTube, but I haven't watched them, so. It's coming. Nice. <laughs> now, opponent-wise, obviously you, know, you got the Flayers of the world, uh, you know, the Lugers, the Mudas. I mean, literally the Dusties. You've worked with anybody who's anybody in wrestling. Do you have some favorite opponents throughout your career? Uh, I mean, I always liked working with Dick Murdoch. I worked. I liked working with Dustin. Uh, of course, Steamboat and 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 Rick. Uh, Ricky and Robert Morton, uh, you know, the U.S. Express, they were great to work with. It was just, uh, you know, there in the 80s at uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, we had a heck of a squad. And, yeah, I mean, there was just uh, every night, no matter who you worked with, you could have a hell of a match. Now, quickly on Dustin, you guys had such amazing chemistry against each other in, in a tag team. Was it because you're both... You know, sons of really legendary wrestling figures that could possibly be, you know, of the all-time great. Was it easy to connect with him because of your fathers? Uh, you know, I, I love Dustin like a brother, and he, even though I haven't talked to him in a couple of years now. But, uh, you know, he's just, uh, it was just one of those things we just clicked whenever we were in the ring. And, you know, I, I would I would always lead the match, and he, he would listen, and, uh I just really can't think of any bad ones that we had, but, you know, Dustin is just so talented anyway that, I mean, it's easy to work with him anyway. So it's just it's just one of those things, just easy to work with people. Now, it's funny, when you were younger, 
I didn't realize that you were Black Jack's son because you guys look nothing alike. But now as you start to get older, I feel like, you know, you look just like your dad, just like Black Jack. Do you get that a lot from, you know, maybe even some of your contemporaries and some of the older people? Like, wow, you look so much like your dad. Yeah, I get it from all the guys all the time, especially the older ones. But, yeah, I, I'm definitely his son. Yep. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Now, you know, through your career, so many legendary moments, so many legendary things. Your dad, obviously one of the best, one of the greatest draws of all time, if you really look at it, and all the business he did. Looking back, what do you think is the lasting legacy on not just Barry Wyndham, but even Kendall and, and Blackjack Mulligan? What do you think is the legacy of your family, the great workers and the great draws that you guys were? You know, I, honestly, I don't know. It's uh, We all had our own style of work in the ring. You know, we, we're known for different things. But, uh, you know, as a, as a family, you know, we've got the Rotundos in it and, and our family. So, I mean, it's just uh, as far as legacy goes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a legacy name, you know, Wyndham and Mulligan name. So we'll just we'll see where it goes from here. Now, I know you're a little bit reclusive now. Is it very hard to get in touch with you? Are you doing a lot of hunting, fishing, and kind of uh, off the grid a little bit down there? Yeah, whenever I can. And, and I build old cars and motorcycles, too, so keeps me busy. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time, and uh, you are a true legend and one of the greatest workers of all time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, let's pause for one second to remind you that today's episode is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Eat Your Coffee. Eat Your Coffee is a coffee company that was founded by coffee-deprived college students that pioneered a new category in caffeinated natural snacks. The company's first product line, Eat Your Coffee Bars, are a date-based snack bar caffeinated with fair trade coffee, which would be comparable to one cup, and made with real ingredients so you can feel good with every energizing bite. Eat Your Coffee snack bars are non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, 70% organic, and available in three delicious flavors, including fudgy mocha latte, salted caramel macchiato, and peanut butter mocha, my personal favorite. Now that is an energizing combination because they are on a mission to help get people energized with naturally caffeinated snacks made with real, ethically sourced ingredients. So if you want more information, head on over to www.eatyour.coffee, as well as follow them on Instagram, follow them on Facebook, follow them on Pinterest, and follow them on Twitter, and get all the information on how you can energize the moment with Eat Your Coffee Bars. Well, there was a bunch of punks with scarves on their head back here. They all piled in a van and hit the bricks. See America, World Championship Wrestling in particular, <laughs> finally getting the idea. Won't be any drive-by shootings. Nothing illegal. Gonna be some immoral things going on, though. You see, we're going to take it as far as the law allows. Tell them, B.W. You know, about five minutes ago, this place was packed with thugs. <laughs> and every door is bolted. They're still clipping the padlocks on the doors. This one right here is afraid to come out, afraid to even look out the window. But I'll tell you what, it's this way in every town we go. Every street we walk, every bar, pub, or club we walk in, everybody seems to disappear. And it's happening that way in World Championship Wrestling. Sting, Luger, the Steiners, Doom, in their own element, are nowhere to be found. We came down here looking for Teddy Long. I think he owns this joint, but it got us nowhere. 
Let me tell you something. Barry Wyndham got a funny new haircut, a lot of them say it. <laughs> Ric Flair got a funny haircut. Ric Flair don't wear three-piece suits anymore. What's the matter with you guys? Well, there ain't nothing the matter with us. What's going to be the matter is with each and every day that passes, casualties begin to pile up. You take this violent city, you look at these people in the window, scared to death to come outside. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. The strong survive. And their strength in numbers. And we're talking about numbers. We're talking about four. It's so cool. For you to mention that is, uh, is absolutely unbelievable because we can't forget, John and I being from the Northeast, we cannot forget when the Brain Busters took on the Rockers. Some of the best matches of the late 80s were the Brain Busters and the Rockers, and I'm sure we're going to get to that in just a minute here. But just to kind of wrap up what you're saying about the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Express going in was huge. Uh, and we spoke with Jim Cornette about three weeks ago. And he said what he loved about showing up to do the WWE Hall of Fame, which, of course, was another amazing thing in its own self, was him, his return. But he walked in, he said he saw Ric Flair, he saw Arn Anderson, he saw the Rock and Roll Express, he saw himself there. He said it felt like it was a Crockett pay-per-view. And he really felt uh, very special that the, uh, the embracement of the, uh, the NWA and the Crockett era superstars are really starting to get embraced. Do you feel that fans as well? are starting to really embrace the Crockett era and trying to do all they can to learn about that era of guys? Well, absolutely. You know, in, in those days, you know, if you lived up north and you didn't have TBS, you were WWF fans at the time, which is now obviously WWE. And they didn't get a lot of stuff unless it was syndicated Crockett stuff. So... There definitely were two distinct audiences, and then your syndication started going in there. And, of course, you know, cable TV revolutionized everything. So, you know, the fans that they used to, you know, that will come up to me now and still know me as it's the Brain Busters. You know, it's not, not so much the Horsemen. Of course, they know about it, but, you know, they were Brain Buster fans or hated the Brain Busters' guts, one or the other. So, you know, the cross-pollination of all that with with the brands and everything being consolidated, it's just uh, somebody has a different story and somebody was a fan of a different era, but I think everybody understands that Crockett was something pretty special and a lot of major, major talent came from that company and that era. I know I will be forever grateful uh, because that's where I cut my chops and figured out, you know, about really what to do in this business and how to grow and excel and add to the to the business itself and contribute and uh that's what they were all about and that's why they were so su successful <clears throat> looking back at nwa and jcp it's just an amazing roster of talent like we, we mentioned a bunch of guys that were great but i think at the top of everyone's list is going to be arn anderson flair and the horsemen i think that's going to really come to mind when that group came together, and you you know you cut that legendary promo, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, did you ever dream that it was going to turn into this huge monster that it became? No, I don't. You know, just like I didn't walk into that interview planning to say any of that. It, it literally, you know, and a lot of people don't believe it, but most do because it's the absolute truth. It just, you know, it just popped into my head, and I. It was just born that day, and uh, it's funny. The very next week, people were were starting to chant 
four horsemen, four horsemen, four horsemen. And then, you know, the four fingers went up, and, and that started to grow. Um, it was something that just literally came out of nowhere, but as soon as it was Tony Giovanni stepped up and went, hey, you just named you guys, I could see the look on everybody's face. They immediately got on board, and we knew we had something special. We just didn't know how special. And so many people are still talking about the Horsemen to this day, probably the greatest faction of all time. Obviously, a big part of that group besides yourself and Tully and Rick is Ole. And you mentioned before, everyone always asks you, you know, where is he today and all sort of stuff. Was he a great mentor to you? Obviously, besides, you know, quote-unquote resembling him and being his cousin and, you know, or being, being a part of the Anderson family, being his brother and this and that. Was he a big mentor in, in your wrestling life? I don't know that he knew that he was, because anybody that knows Ole knows Ole's kind of in his own world. But I tell you, I learned as much, and I've said this on record, as much or more from him in the eight, ten months we were together, whatever it was, than I did the entire time I was in the, the business. Credibility is the first word, you know, that comes to mind. I looked at Ole Anderson as his partner, and I just sat there in the corner in awe of, of just how good, how convincing, how rugged. Uh, he made you believe, you know, because he was real. Ole Anderson was a, was a badass, no doubt about it. And uh, I just kind of sat there and soaked it in and, and, and just learned a lot of intangibles from him that I took with me and, and I try to teach today. He, uh, yeah. You know, he was awesome. With Ole, the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, obviously great. The Horsemen is great. And you guys had great chemistry. But I think second to none would be you and Tully. Like we said, the Brain Busters. But you and Tully, even in the NWA, possibly the greatest chemistry of all time. Possibly, you know, your greatest tag partner. Can you just explain how you and Tully were able to mesh so well together? Well, if you look if you look at the best teams over time, they weren't, you know, Ole and I looked looked alike, but we didn't wrestle alike. Um, Tully and I looked nothing alike, wrestled absolutely nothing alike, but we both had our strengths and we both had our weaknesses and we stayed away from our weaknesses and worked towards our strengths and and that kind of leads you to, you know, now, okay, we got to put a match together. Let's, let, let's see uh, who our competition is. Look, look at their strengths, look at their weaknesses. And we did a lot of planning before matches, you know, a lot of conversation between he and I and, hey, if this happens, you know, or this comes up, let's try this. Or, you know, it was just a lot of thought that went into it. You, we just didn't walk in there blind. We did our homework. And uh, the main thing is that we shot for is when we walked out of that curtain, you can feel the passion and the audience one way or the other, you know, about us. And we could feel it in each other because we just, whether or not Rick was after us or in the match with us or that rare time that, that he might have even been below us, which I don't know when that would ever have been, but the fact is, the success of the Horsewood was because, Barry Wyndham included, we all tried to outdo each other with the recipients obviously being the fans. 
You know, we tried to steal the show from each other with whatever opponent we had. And it was, we were working for the audience and working for that feeling that when you came back through the curtain, you didn't have to ask anybody how the match was. You knew. One way or the other, you knew. And uh, I think that's what, you know, the competitive spirit between Tully and I uh, and whoever our opponent was is what made us a, a very good tag team, I thought. Um, much like Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton and Cornette, in my opinion, the, the greatest tag team that ever was. That's just my opinion. Uh, but Tully and I fit in there somewhere, that's for, that's for sure. If it's not top one, I guess, you know, it could be top two with the Midnight Express, that's for sure. And it's great with you and Tully. I mean, I always said you guys were better than Flair, and, and obviously people could argue with me on that, but you guys were such a key and vital role. You guys could have a good match with the Road Warriors and then have a good match with Rock and Roll Express, who are the opposite. And then, like you said, you guys can have a good match with the Midnight Express. You guys kind of take that with, uh, you know, a lot of pride that, hey, any team you throw at us, no matter what, we're going to have a good match? Absolutely. Absolutely. At the end of the day, you had to know who you were working for, and you were working for the audience. You know, Jim Crockett, you know, paid our salary, but the fact is the audience dictated and determined on whether you got over or not. And uh, if you put a butt every 16 inches and it was barely, you were barely able to hear yourself think the whole time you were in that ring, you knew pretty well you had contributed. And uh, that was the goal because when the houses are full, everybody benefits. And uh, it was that unselfishness um, that I think drove the company for that three-year period. It certainly, We certainly showed a leadership role in the company and the way we conducted our business. And, uh, yeah, it just worked. It was a very special time. And, and I call that the golden age from – from 85 to probably 89, I don't think the business has ever been hotter. Uh, every, both companies were doing well. We would be sold out in, in Philadelphia at the Civic Center. They'd be at the Spectrum, you know, cross town sold out. So business was good. Uh, competition is always good for everybody, and uh, we just love competing. Like you said, 85 to 89, golden age of wrestling is probably our favorite era on our, on this show. We always love to talk about it. Such a great time in wrestling. So many larger-than-life characters. So many guys you could just point to and just name off the top of your head and just rattle them off that they're a huge star. And as far as the horsemen are concerned, I have to mention Dusty, who fits in that category perfectly. Huge, larger-than-life guy. We had the chance uh, to interview him on our show. He was just what an unbelievable guy and just charisma even comes through on the phone and you just feel close to him over the phone. It's crazy, but he kind of really got you over in your TV title feud with him. Can you just kind of give us a little bit of uh, a little bit of dusty, you know, as far as your experiences with him. Dusty is one of the, the few guys and there's probably just a few that to this day, uh, if he walked, God bless him. Caught on my deck where I'm sitting right now, I would just sit here with my jaw on the ground thinking to myself, God, what a big star he is. Um, I feel that way today. I feel that way uh, my entire career and the first time I ever met him. I was just starstruck. He's one of those rare individuals 
that it just comes out of his pores. And uh, Dusty Rhodes was never Virgil Runnels. Dusty Rhodes was always Dusty Rhodes. And it wasn't something he put on in the morning and took off at night. He was... That's who he was, and he was a huge star, and uh, he was a creative guy. And uh, one thing, one thing Dusty knew better than anything is Dusty knew how to program a show with him at the lead, and he should have been in the lead, and uh, sell some tickets. And uh, I learned a lot from him. I learned just being in the by osmosis, just being in a match with him elevated me. I know that. And uh, I saw it happen to a lot of guys, and uh, he was something special. There will only be one, that's for sure. Definitely true on Dusty. And do you think that the Horsemen would have gotten kind of as big as they did without Dusty being that perfect foil for them? I think Dusty needed the Horsemen, and the Horsemen needed Dusty. I agree with that 100%. Then you filter in uh, the Rock and Roll Express, and you figure in, you know, all the other players, the Midnight Express, you, you know, Ronnie Garvin, you name it. Everybody that uh, that was in that era that was contributing, the Road Warriors, my God, you know, we had a lot of lot of packed houses wrestling those guys. Uh, it was just one of those when you got Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner in the first and second match. As good as those guys were, you know, it was just loaded, top to top to bottom. Uh, you know, the Russians, it's incredible. Incredible amount of talent came through Jim Crockett Promotions, that's for sure. Everybody really a contributing factor to the success uh, that really, you know, was Jim Crockett Promotions. But if we just can uh, skip forward a little bit and for the sake of time, just want to cover a little bit of uh, the WWF run. So I know you've always said that that run was such a big deal because, you know, even though it was only about a year or so, the impact that you guys had was great. And like you mentioned, Ronnie Garvin, yourself, Barry Windham, Dusty Rhodes, Tully, by this, and J.J. actually, too, moving over into an office capacity at one point, in 1989, there was about as much of the NWA Crockett feel in the WWF than there was anywhere else. But the one question I've always wanted to ask you, this is a total fanboy question, is there was there any chance at any point that Flair was going to come over because you had the core members of the Four Horsemen all in the WWF at one point? There was discussion um, about that before Tully and I left. Uh, there was a, a lot of gray area on was Crockett gonna sell the company? Were they gonna go bankrupt? You know, there was just it was all rumors. It never it didn't come from any of the Crockett's, but you know, all rumors start somewhere. Um, so there was discussion about Flair coming. Um, as it turned out, I don't think anybody truly believed Tully and I were gonna make the move. Um, there was some inside wrangling that that uh, wasn't benefiting us, and we couldn't get an answer um, on some stuff. So I thought was this, you know, if if a big hole goes in the middle of that ship, there's only going to be so many life jackets. And um, there had been feelers sent out, you know, over the over the years, you know, that Vince would like to like to have you guys. So we thought timing was everything, and we did make that move. Uh, Rick decided against it. Uh, there was a dis- 
you know, some discussion. Everybody's got to make their own business decisions. He made his, we made ours. Uh, I would just like to say before it gets forgot about, James J. Dillon was as much uh, a part of the horseman as any one of us. And I feel that way today, just like I felt that way then. He added to our group. He was truly a mentor, truly a manager as far as organizational skills. And he's just a good man, and I call him a good friend to this day. So I don't want anybody to make light of the fact that J.J. Dillon was the fifth horseman. And uh, for sure. And he is tired. He's going for the home run. But Barry Windham is right there. Windham is up there. And now Barry Windham is going to the second row. He's super close. That's one of his favorite moves. Let's see if he can. Can he get all the weight over? He may. No, he can't do it. His leg gave way. Yeah. His he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. His leg gave way on him. Oh, we are seeing one courageous match here. But we still got, there's a, I know we got a couple minutes left here. Both men are in the He got him! He got him! What's that move? That's his move! Hey, what are you doing, JJ? 28 minutes. What's JJ? The thing is this, and, and I've said this probably a hundred times on interviews, it was not a booker a promoter or anybody sitting around in a room going, okay, we're going to call these four guys the four horsemen. It was Arn Anderson that just said it because we had an eight-man tag match. And we happened to be, uh, I mean, I was the only non-Anderson family. Flair was a cousin. Arn and Ole were, were related. So it was an Anderson clan thing, and we just happened to have all the championship belts, and we were trying to steal uh, a house by not giving away all the matches. And I was fortunate enough to be be having a feud uh, with Dusty Rhodes. And so Dusty was in that match, so I got to be in the match. And uh, when Arn called us that, uh, we had no idea that it would catch on, but the wrestling fans caught on. And when the wrestling fans started coming to the arenas, a bunch of college students in coats and ties and sunglasses and holding up four, uh, horsemen uh, flashcards, you know, it was I could remember standing in the, in the hallway uh, or the tunnel in Greensboro Coliseum, and Jim Crockett came by and he said, this thing's really getting over, isn't it? And I just kind of in my moderately smart aleck way, rolled my eyes and said, <laughs> yeah, it is. And, uh, but, it, you know, it, it, there's a difference when the fans cause the, the acceleration to the uh, popularity versus a, a writing crew sitting in a room going, ah, this is going to get over and we're going to push it on TV. And, and, it, and it's different. It's just a different thing, and that's why the horseman uh, is still talked about and still remembered. Oh, totally. And then when you are a booker in this case, so let's take Dusty, for instance, and he's handed you know, this instantaneous group that just is over now, and there's people who want to see these four guys together. 
and you're handing a booker something that he can run with. And, of course, Dusty being, you know, the, the top babyface at the time, it makes it a little easier. But do you think that Dusty saw you guys together and said, those are my four guys, we're running with these four for the foreseeable future as the top heels for the NWA? Well, I mean, he, he didn't really have any choice. I mean, it was, when he got, got the job as Booker, uh, he and I, uh, I wrestled him and, and, and Wahoo wrestled Flair, and it turned the territory around and started it in, a, in, a, in the, the progress that it was going into. And, and so then switching Flair uh, heel and uh, bringing in Arn. Uh, into the territory and, and Arn and Ole being a tag team and the natural family ties between Flair and the Andersons. And then me, because I, I got to, I was wrestling Dusty is the only reason I was involved, but it was, you know, it was a great spot to be. And I mean, we, we made people look better than they could make themselves look. And uh, I, I don't say that, very arrogantly, but I do take pride in, in the ability that Flair had, Arn had, Ole had, that Barry had, and I had to make our opponents uh, bigger-than-life heroes. And, and that was our job, to sell tickets and to make guys look great. And uh, once you get in that flow and once the fans uh, got behind it, uh, you know, I mean, it was it, it would have been it would have been a very tactical error to not push those guys. And there were more guys. I mean, you look at uh, the Midnight Express. You look at uh, Ivan and Nikita Koloff. Uh, you look at the, there are other heels that that were over and drew houses and and were other parts. And I'm I'm just not remembering back that far. Uh, you know, all the guys that were over. But, I mean, it, it didn't make any difference. It was a great group of wrestlers. The only thing I could compare it to was, a, was an old picture my dad had of the territory in Indianapolis in, like, 1961 and 62, and, and they were playing a, a softball game. And you had what a crew that you had from Dick the Bruiser and Bobo Brazil and Sheik and uh, Wilbur Snyder and, and uh, Nick Bockwinkle and my dad, the Shires brothers, and uh, uh, Cowboy Bob Ellis. I mean, it was everybody, Gene Kaniski, everybody that was anybody in wrestling was in that territory at that time. And they all split out and, and, and changed wrestling for the mid-60s uh, all over the country with the territories. And... You know, it was just a massive, talented crew that made WCW what it was at that time, and it was and it was phenomenal to be part of that. Oh yeah, the roster is a veritable who's who. You know, the legends, the Hall of Famers, you know, the icons, and all the big names of that era that converged on Crockett Promotions, the NWA, and then into WCW. But what about the chemistry with the four of you guys, the original four? You know, and we've seen. 
documentaries produced by WWE. We've seen other documentaries made where you talk about a day in the life of the horseman and you guys are running roughshod. But how about the chemistry between the original four and JJ together as a unit and how you guys really just gelled and worked together? Well, I start with, with you know, JJ was my manager after Baby Doll. And when I got in the horseman, he, he was, you know, in line to be the, the horseman uh, manager. But J.J. was one of the, the greatest managers that this business has ever seen simply because he was not always trying to be the star. He knew what his role was. He knew what, what, what his place and how to accentuate every match that he was a part of. And, and it was a joy to go to the ring with him because he wasn't trying to steal the show. And uh, that was great. And then you have, you have four guys that basically had the same philosophy in the ring. And that was, how do you make people scream? And, and you make people scream when baby faces are making comebacks. And... We had the ability, whether it was in a tag team, whether it was in a six-man, whether it was in an eight-man, to all follow suit with the flow of what the match was. And, and you don't necessarily see that too often anymore, whether it's a lost art or whether it's just not being, being taught. But it, it is, you know, there's a time for getting heat on your opponent. There's a time for making a comeback. And we all followed together, and it, it was a, it was the chemistry was was fantastic, and uh, I, I think chemistry is probably the key word because when Arn and I left and went to the WWF in 19, at the end of 1988, uh, the four horsemen were still there. You still had Flair, you still had Barry, and they tried. I don't know how many guys big name guys to put in there to replace Arn and I and it never worked. They they tried to resurrect it time and time and time again and it never worked. The closest thing was is when Arn and I left the WWF to go back and reform it. They hired Arn and didn't hire me and that was the closest that it came to because that was the closest chemistry that they had to the original. Did that make sense? Absolutely, definitely. Now, I was actually, I was actually going to mention that. It was actually my next point because I was going to say that obviously Flair is key. He's integral. He's, you know, he's the man. But Arn and yourself are basically, in my opinion, the, the two best workers, you know, the, the two great talkers, the keys to the team. But, you know, without you guys, they aren't quite what they were. So who is you know your ideal horseman? I'm sure you get access a million times, but who's your favorite group of, of the bunch? Was it the original, or or did you like having maybe Barry Windham a part of the group? Well, the 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 greatest group of guys, okay, most talented guys, most flexible guys was the group that went into the Hall of Fame, which was it was Barry with with the uh, Rick, Arn, and I. The original four was a, was a different dynamic because Arn and Ole were the tag team, and because of the 
uh, Foley's in-the-ring philosophy. The tag team had to follow that that dynamic. It was a little bit more uh, grinding it out type stuff. Whereas when Barry came became part of the Horsemen, he became the other single. Arn and I gravitated to the tag team, and the tag team, just because of of different styles, only had a had a different style than I had. We were we were more flexible to the opponents that we could that we could wrestle. I mean, we looked just as good against the rock and roll as we did against. Animal and Hawk, or Demolition, or Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. So you've got two ends of the spectrum on on the the things that you could accentuate in your opponents. And uh, but I think I think that we had the greatest amount of diversity and flexibility when you had Barry in as part of the horse. Definitely, no doubt. That's probably the four best workers too. Yourself, Arn Flair, and Barry just. Unbelievable as a tandem, but you made a, um, a point about you know when they almost try to reform the Horsemen, or well they did, but they didn't have you reform it in 1990 when you, you know when you came back after being from the you know gone, you went to the WWE or WWF at the time. What happened then? And, you know obviously they rehired Arn, they beat up Sting and that big angle on Clash of Champions, but you are nowhere to be found. Were you backstage that night? No, I was not. Uh, I was. Uh, uh, they they. I had flunked a drug test with uh, the WWF, and they had they had uh, uh, suspended me 22 days before I was Arn and I were going to reappear, and and they tried to play major hardball and get me to take a lot less money than what they'd agreed to us uh, for us to give our notice to events, and um, you know I mean it, it's it, in those days. It was not a. I'm not proud of flunking a drug test. You know, I was a, a social cocaine user, and uh, uh, and I fl- and I flunked a drug test in Madison, Wisconsin, and and then uh, WCW tried to use it as a power play. They guaranteed Arn and I uh, $750,000 over over three years, and um, then they tried to. They, they did, and this is probably the biggest regret I have in, in, in my life, is that they used my mistake and, on leverage on Arn, and it cost him uh, $150,000 over the next three years. And, um, uh, you know, and they, they, they never – they didn't come back to me until – probably a year later trying to uh, hire me back uh, and you know and, and they wanted to hire me back for $500 a day and that was crazy uh, when they were giving big money to other people so that wasn't about to happen but uh, it was just uh, just greed got involved uh, on their part trying to trying to save money as a company and uh, and they should have, in my opinion, they should have hired me back. They'd have made way more money. But 
anyway. Yeah, without a doubt. Now, Telly, you mentioned when you left wrestling, wrestling went on without you, but what did you go on to do following your wrestling career, and what are you still doing to this day? Well, I mean, I, I uh, November 13th, 1989, when I found out that WCW had reneged on the deal, uh, I laid in bed for, Flair called me at 1 in the morning, and for three hours I laid in bed trying to figure out what I was going to do with life. And I never came up with a plan for the first time. And at 4.03 in the morning, I said, Jesus, take over my life. And it was the first time I'd ever said the name Jesus when I wasn't cussing somebody. <laughs> and uh, I'd never been, to a, never been to church and wasn't raised in that, that vein. Uh, my parents, in my mind and in my interpretation, when my brother was killed in, uh, in 1978, uh, they they went and got religion and uh, didn't understand that really. And um, uh, so I went on. And then uh, when, I, when I made that, when I said those five words, something happened to me that the emotional chaos in my life stopped and, and there was a calmness that came over me. And uh, as I tell uh, people all across this country in prisons, I said, my life took a different path right then. And at 61 years old, it has brought me back to this prison yard and uh, doing and telling you my story in hopes that somebody could say, I think my path needs to be changed. And, uh, and that's, that's what I do. I, I go through the doors that, that the Lord is opening for me, and I tell my story uh, wherever I can. Uh, because the only thing that will put somebody's life on track is if you, if a person quits being the center point and God does become the center point. Now, I'm not talking about the religious fanatics that cause terrorism and that kind of stuff, because if you, if you fall in love with the only true and living God, he says, love your neighbors as you love yourself. So the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, and love your neighbors as you love yourself. And that is not a religious maniac cutting people's heads off, if that made any sense. I hope hmm. that wasn't a political statement. No, not at all. No, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. And I'll tell you what, you know, I like to usually, uh, you know, it be my next to last question, but, you know, I like to ask, you know, what's your legacy on wrestling? Obviously, wrestling is a small part of your whole entire, you know, life picture and everything that you do, because obviously you have gone on to do some wonderful things for many, many people, and it's fantastic to hear that post-wrestling, you know, you're, you're, just, you're making such a difference. But just to touch on wrestling and your father's legacy, yourself, and moving on to your daughter – the Blanchard name in the annals of pro wrestling at the end of the day, what will everyone say? What will the general consensus be on the Blanchard family and the impact they made on professional wrestling? Well, I, I think you would be a better answer of that than I would because I, I don't really know. Um, you know, my dad uh, started wrestling in 19, uh, 1954. Stu Hart broke him in after he played football up in Canada, and uh, 
I was fortunate enough to to he I was fortunate enough to have my dad know that promotion was where the money really was made. He got into the promotion business, and then I was going to go ahead and learn the wrestling business so that I could be in the promotion business. So I learned it, and, uh, and somewhere in there I learned how to be how to sell tickets, and don't really know how and why, but I was very fortunate. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate that, that uh, uh, 22 years after my career was over, I was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame with, with, uh, with four other guys that were a, a huge part of my life. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.